Well, we're continuing our series this morning through the second half of Mark's gospel. If you have a Bible, please turn there to the passage we just heard, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. It begins with this strange opening line. Verse 30, talking about Jesus and his disciples. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. What's going on here? Well, Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem. But even though they're on the same path, they're, they're not at all on the same page. You see, the disciples think that Jesus is about to take Jerusalem by force. That he's going to break through the holy city, kill the bad guys, take the throne, and establish the reign of God <clears throat> that Jews for centuries had been longing for and waiting for and praying for. But that's not the plan. That's not the plan at all. Jesus is going to Jerusalem for one reason and one reason only. To die. And no matter how Jesus explains this to them, they simply cannot and will not accept this. Now sure, Jesus' words at face value, are simple enough. We might wonder, what's so hard about understanding be killed? But it's just here where you and I have to stop and, and strive to understand, strive to appreciate how utterly shocking and counterintuitive and worldview shattering was this idea of a suffering Messiah. It simply didn't fit into any of the preconceived notions of Jesus' contemporaries. And so Jesus is teaching them privately. Uh, students, if you've ever crammed for a final exam, didn't you have those recently? So This is your biblical justification for it, right? There's not much time left. Jesus is privately instructing his disciples in the final and most intensive part of their formation. And he doesn't want anyone to know where he is. So that his disciples' attention can be riveted and entirely focused on what he's trying to teach them. And what is he teaching them about? He's teaching them about power. That's the issue, isn't it? That's why the disciples can't even begin to understand what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying. It's because they, just like us so often, are operating on an understanding of power that Jesus is trying to push out of vogue. The understanding that only the strong survive. And that if you want something to get done, you just got to do it yourself. The sort of might makes right mentality that all of us have grown up with, especially in our American culture. 
But Jesus is showing us a different way. At the heart of Christianity isn't some muscular alpha male in a graphic tee barking orders at his subordinates. At the heart of Christianity, there's this surprising tenderness, this scandalous uh, vulnerability. At the heart of Christianity is the cross, the giving up of power, <clears throat> the pouring out of resources, the willing service to those who need a little help. So let's take a look at what Jesus has to tell us about power. I want us to look at three things. We're going to see the goodness of power. Yes, the goodness of power. The idolatry of power and the reordering of power. The goodness of power, the idolatry of power, and the reordering of power. First, the goodness of power. <clears throat> Look with me at verse 35. Jesus sits down which was the customary teaching position of that day. He doesn't have this strain on his legs that I'm experiencing right now. And he says, if anyone would be first. At least that's what it says in my version. But in most version, that phrase is translated a little bit closer to the Greek. If anyone wants to be first. Now that kicks it up a notch, doesn't it? All the valedictorians in the room just woke up. If anyone wants to be first, it's almost, it almost sounds like Jesus is affirming power. It almost sounds like Jesus is affirming this innate desire in each one of us that wants to be the best. And that's because he is. And this is such good news for athletes and CEOs and really for anyone who wants to take their vocation seriously. You don't have to survive on a steady diet of humble pie to be a Christian in your vocation. You really can be a Christian. And be in top level management. You really can be a Christian. And work on Wall Street. Or at Harvard. Or in politics. You really can be a Christian. And be recognized. For the good things that you've done. So this is really good news. That Jesus gives to us. Except that it's not really news at all. It's actually as old as creation itself. Think back to our Old Testament reading, Genesis 1. When God made human beings, He made us godlike. He didn't just He didn't just know what we were capable of. He actually gave all our capabilities to us to begin with. Dignity and beauty and creativity and intelligence. In a word power this ability to create and it all culminates with this massive blessing 
in Genesis 1.28. And you can almost imagine God's voice at this point booming these words over the untamed creation, just echoing through the chambers of the wild universe. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Have dominion. Does that make you nervous? Are you with Kanye West when he says no one man should have all that power? Well, then get ready for this. Every time God finishes a part of his creation, he compliments it. It is good. Verse 3, light's created, it's good. Verse 9, oceans are created, it's good. Verse 12, plants are created, it's good. Over and over again, with the mountains, the trees, the animals, after every act of creation, God says it is good until verse 31. God creates us and gives us power. And he says, it is very good. Now, why this change in rhythm? You don't have to be a careful reader to notice this in the text. It's blatant. It's obvious. It's crying out for our attention here. What's the point? The point is, God doesn't just love us as people in some ethereal sense. He also loves us as his fellow creators, as culture makers. He loves us and he loves what we do and what we make. Parents, isn't this the way you feel about your children? You love what they make. That's why you can't bear to throw away the rainbow-colored, stale macaroni paperweight that they made for you when they were four years old. It's because you don't just love your son or daughter in some spiritual sense. No, you love everything about them. And that points us that God loves everything about us. And when we make things that honor Him and reveal the hidden beauty of His creation, He again repeats His last refrain. It's very good. You see, when Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he's showing us, even for the briefest of moments, a window into God's economy of the goodness of power, the goodness of creativity, and the goodness of God, who gave it all to us in the very beginning. And when we have that understanding of power, that it's not a necessary evil, as some in our culture would say, but that it's a gift, an integral part of God's good creation, when we have that understanding of power, it radically changes our perspective to everything. Suddenly, we stop viewing those in authority with extreme suspicion. Suddenly, we stop looking at the world through the eyes of a cynic 
or a critic. No, if we understand the creation story rightly, our fundamental posture toward all culture and even all power is affirmation. Since God loves the world, not just his idea of the world a long, long, long time ago, but loves the world as it really is, we have to as well. So power is good. Jesus affirms our desire to get it and to use it. And yet power is tricky, isn't it? It has to be regulated. Our government knows that. And without proper boundaries, it can be abused. So we have to talk about the goodness of power, but we also have to talk about the idolatry of power. Look with me back in Mark chapter 9 now, at verse 31. Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days... He will rise. Now, this is the second of three times that Jesus will make this prediction. The first was in chapter 8. And you would think, as sequels normally go, that this second prediction would be pretty unremarkable. Empire Strikes Back syndrome there. Not so. You see, in the Greek... That first sentence literally reads, the Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men. Now you think, what's so handy about that? Sorry, I had to make that joke. I even told my wife and she was like, don't. It's okay. All right. What's so special about that? Well, in the ancient world, hands were a symbol of power. They were the tool of tools of, of human activity. Uh, and to fall into someone's hands or to be handed over to someone was to become utterly helpless to whatever they were scheming against you. Which is the very thing that happens to Jesus a couple pages later in the garden when his enemies, Mark tells us, laid hands on him and seized him And ultimately, he's handed over to the most violent impulses of the very people he had come to save. And on top of that, look at the disciples. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. It's as if Jesus' words had been totally ignored. As if everything he had just said about suffering and dying had been completely forgotten. But of course they hadn't been. Supposing Jesus were to die, the disciples think, who's going to fill the power vacuum? Naturally, it'd be Peter or James or John, right? They're the ones Jesus 
chose to take with him up on the mountain a few verses earlier. But what Mark wants us to see is that this whole argument is misguided. And it's not because power is bad and leadership isn't important in the kingdom. That's not it at all. No, this argument is misguided because it's founded on a broken understanding of power that Jesus is totally obliterating. It's this understanding that all groups, all societies are built on the model of a pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid are the powerful, the rich, the intelligent. They're the ones that are called to govern and guide the rest of us. And at the bottom of the pyramid are the immigrants and the slaves and the servants and the people who are out of work and the disabled. They're the ones who are excluded and marginalized. And this is the model we all have in our heads where authority has power and is on top. It's the model we live by. I mean, don't we all try to become friends with the important people on top, not those on the bottom? Or haven't we all been to a luncheon or a dinner banquet where nobody wants to commit to a seat because they're waiting for Mr. Popular to sit down and they want to be as close to the action, as close to the power as possible? And you think, wow, this is like middle school all over again. It's this phenomenon that the Christian writer C.S. Lewis has called the inner ring. This desire to be inside the invisible line that divides the strong people and the successful people and the rich people and the powerful people from the weak people, from the people who are going nowhere. And it's not that these inner rings are wrong. They're actually unavoidable and inevitable in every group. So it's, it's good to have friends and confidants. It's good to like the people that you're working with and to make close friends. We even see something like an inner ring, an inevitable inner ring in Jesus' own disciples, right? Peter, James, and John. It's probably what stirred this uh, argument to begin with. But when this desire to enter the inner ring to be associated with the rich and the powerful is the great mainspring of all your actions. When this desire is one of the chief motives of your life, it breaks you. And it breaks everything you touch. It fractures everything. How many fathers or mothers have neglected their families and worked an ungodly amount of hours outside the home, just to make it to the top? How many good friendships in your own life have come to ruin simply out of rivalry and competition? How much anxiety do we create in ourselves trying desperately to get inside whatever local ring we want to be a part of and then dealing with the terror of being left outside of it? So you see, idols of power, they're not just for the powerful. 
The world is not divided into good people and bad people by a vertical line. Like the people who killed Jesus on the one hand and the disciples on the other hand. No, the line of good and evil is more like a horizontal line that cuts through all of us at different places. You can pursue power in small, petty ways by becoming a neighborhood bully. Or you can pursue power by becoming a low-level bureaucrat who bosses around the few people who find themselves in the field of your authority. Power idolatry is all around us. I mean, what else would make Judas hand Jesus over to a violent death except for this twisted desire not to be powerful, but to be powerful to the exclusion and destruction of someone else? Is there really a massive difference between that and the office politics that you see in your workplaces? Someone wants their way, so they play office politics to get it. They size up colleagues as either allies or enemies and go about pitting these teams against each other. And eventually, this person gets what they want, but not without dismembering the entire organization and developing a toxic work environment. It's this unbridled idolatry of power, and it can rear its nasty head in all of us, just like it did in Jesus' disciples. But that's why Jesus came. Not just to save our souls, but to save and reorder the whole world, the whole of creation, including power. Look with me at verses 35 through 37. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is giving his disciples a radical paradigm shift. They don't realize that they're still held captive and need to be delivered from the prevailing mentality of their society, from this weird socioeconomic power pyramid of Rome. But Jesus is about to transform this broken model of society from a pyramid to a body where each and every person has a place, whatever their abilities or disabilities, where each one is dependent upon the other, and where even a child, which was viewed in the ancient world as less than a slave, even a child is given the dignity of a prince. Again, we need to be clear, Jesus isn't condemning power. He's not condemning the innate desires for grandeur in the human heart. But he turns human thinking on its head. 
the only way to fulfill these desires that we have, paradoxically, ironically, in the weird economy of God, is to put oneself last in priority. And this isn't just a a pious thought. It's supposed to be expressed in concrete actions, Jesus says, by becoming a servant of all. This is why God gave us power to bring flourishing to every nook and cranny of his creation, to give those who exist outside the inner ring access to enter into the joy of their creator. But here's the thing. When we use power, this God-given power, to our own ends, to our own self-promotion and self-aggrandizement, it self-destructs. That's how God made it. So when a ruler oppresses his people or a supervisor becomes cruel to her employees, ultimately, their regime is short-lived. It's doomed. Because it isn't operating by God's playbook. Their evil comes back on their own heads and they end up eating the bitter fruit of their own power politics. But when we orient ourselves to those on the lower levels of the social pyramid, as our world has it, to those who are weak and defenseless like children, when we make the object of our lives not to keep people out of the inner ring, but to welcome them into the always expanding ring of the kingdom of God, our power actually grows And God blesses us. He blesses our work. Think about it in terms of uh, Christianity's own growth in the Roman Empire. Again, two completely different power dynamics at work. Within the first four centuries of, um, of the current era, zero to 400, um, there were a series of three plagues that hit the massive Roman Empire. And some of them, uh, one of them was um, to such an extent that 5,000 people in the city of Rome died in one day. Some people have even estimated that 50% of the Roman Empire died as a result of one of the plagues. Whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But that's what the historians are saying. And everyone left the city. Like the rulers, the priests, um, everyone who made the city operate left the city. And the only people left were the, the sick and their families who loved them and then the Christians. The Christians stayed behind. And even the bishops were saying, we're dying here because we're helping these other people get better. They're putting their own lives on the line to help people they didn't even know, the people who had persecuted them, the people who had been so cruel to them, they're staying in the city and helping them get better and risking their own lives. And gradually, little by little, the people of the Roman world began to realize that Christians had something distinctive that they actually lacked. They had power. And they had power 
that worked toward the flourishing of everyone, including the sick and the helpless and the weak. The kingdom of God is advancing, but it's not easy. It's a long, perilous process. And if the history of Christianity teaches us anything, it dispels the myth that this enormous thing called secularism will one day just topple over dead or that it will simply wither away as increasing numbers of people come to discover the superiority of Christian teaching. No, in the strange upside-down logic of the kingdom of God, God has radically tethered the growth of his kingdom not to arguments, not to brute force, but to your everyday concrete acts of love. But it's not only Christianity as a religion that experienced this power dynamic. It was Jesus himself. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he took upon himself all the evil this world could muster all the destructive forces of power, all the rivalry and self-promotion, all the hatred, and he let it destroy him, which has always been its intent. And what he does is he takes all of it with him down to the depths of the grave, and it rests there. But in the deep wisdom of God, when Jesus rises from the dead, he leaves all that junk behind and opens up a new way, a new world, where power is given to the poor, to the weak, and to everyone who becomes the servant of all in order to become great, just like Jesus. There is a certain vulnerability at the heart of Christianity, a fragility. It's the vulnerability of the cross. Jesus is walking toward it at full speed ahead. Are you? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.